Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode, we're talking with Professor Christopher Tuck. Chris is a professor of strategic studies at King's College London, uh, where he uh, began teaching in 1997. Prior to that, uh, Chris was a senior lecturer at the uh, UK Department of Defense and International Affairs at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. And then prior to that, he was a research intern at Safer World, a foreign policy lobbying lobbying group. His research interests focus on strategies that relates to conflict termination, land warfare, and in particular, uh, future the future of land warfare, and then counterinsurgency operations, particularly British's operations in Borneo between 1963 and 1966. However, I had uh, Chris on the show to discuss uh, maneuver warfare, particularly in land warfare in general, considering all the uh, all the all the conversations going on regarding uh, maneuver warfare today, especially as it pertains to uh, what we're seeing out of Ukraine and uh, what we're seeing in in Gaza as it relates to Israel's operations. I figured it was an ideal time to have him on uh, to talk to us about maneuver. And Christopher's approach is terrific because it is one of the most balanced and logical analyses I've I've seen or heard on the subject. So without further ado, uh, this is Christopher Tuck from King's College London. All right, so good morning. Today we have uh, Professor Chris Tuck from King's College London on the podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, uh, enough war and warfare and uh with that, Chris, I'd just like to thank you for uh, for coming on this morning. Thanks for inviting me. 
Yeah, absolutely. The uh, and so why did I have Chris come on? So Chris has written uh, some terrific stuff here, and if you're not aware, I really suggest you go out and get it. A couple months ago, I was telling Chris before we got going. A couple months ago, I picked up Understanding Land Warfare, his book that was published in what was it, 2015, through Rutledge, and it's absolutely phenomenal book. It's uh, it takes the very complex idea of land warfare and like the title says, makes it uh, easy to understand, right? And so it condenses down a lot of complex uh, ideas associated with land warfare. And uh, I think it's terrific. I've, I've, I've recommended it to, to many people, and I'm not here plugging the book. I just want to ask Chris, uh, how did you uh, tackle such a such a challenging topic so well? Thanks, Amos. Um, uh, so what was interesting to me, I guess, and, and which sort of provided the, the motivation to write to write the book was so i work at uh, the uk defense academy okay um so i'm teaching mid-rank officers um and what was interesting because this this is a joint environment um mm -hmm. we're teaching uh we're teaching army officers but we're also teaching um air force um navy officers as well what was interesting was that um i couldn't really find a book which would well, really do two things. First, if you didn't know anything about land warfare, if, if you were from one of the other domains and you wanted to know what makes land warfare tick, um, you know, some of its inherent attributes, the, the nature of, of what it is to fight on land, um, then it, it, would be, it would be useful to have something that would help for that audience. Yeah. So I, um, starting at the, literally at the ground up, um, and then um, working through some of the more complex issues, if you're fighting on land, what is difficult about it? What, 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 what uh, helps define its character? So that was one issue. And the other issue was looking for something that would help bring together theory and practice. So, you know, military practitioners have their doctrine, um, but that doctrine doesn't always, I think, um effectively or, or sometimes even accurately a talk about some of the wider debates uh i think it i think it can simplify or misinterpret some of the issues and then for an audience that wasn't in the military from the other side of the fence i suppose it was about finding something that um would help pass military doctrine for them why militaries think in the way that they do what shapes their approaches what are the sorts of key issues key ideas so i was looking for something that would cover that sort of ground and i couldn't find it so yeah. i went and i wrote it um, yeah, that's perfect based off that what is uh, this is a side question here what is it the, that the joint folks seem to have the hardest time understanding about land warfare that you've seen well, I mean, the key the key issue, I think, is is one that that crosses all of the domains, and um, uh, it's worth noting that alongside understanding land warfare, there are there are others who've written understanding naval warfare, and understanding air warfare, and, and so on. The biggest problem, I think, is the extent to which in individual domains there's a tendency to um, overstate the effectiveness or capabilities of one's own of one's own domain, of one's own yep. service, and um, not to focus sufficiently on some of the, the challenges and actually, you know, some of the weaknesses. 
And and also allied to that, there's a tendency, I think, to overstate some of the problems with using the other domains as instruments yep. of power and also not understanding um, from that perspective their, their strengths. So in a joint environment, you need officers that have an accurate, uh, realistic appreciation of the strengths and weaknesses of all of the domains because these days, uh, whether it's joint warfare, multi-domain approaches, of course, is the is the latest um, uh, label for thinking about, about contemporary and future war. If you're going to do multi-domain operations, joint, joint, joint operations effectively, you need officers who understand accurately what military instruments can and can't do uh, across all of the domains. Um, so that was, I think, my motivation for, for writing the book and at least for the land domain was to give give uh, a lay audience some understanding of how the military think and the military audience some understanding of the academic debates which often if if they don't directly challenge military doctrine and sometimes they do um often complicate it something interesting that you pointed out too is uh when you were just explaining that is overstating the importance of one's uh you know one's own domain versus another and an interesting thing that you raise in the book that i think is really really important though is that understanding land uh and understanding land warfare you talk about land forces uh and one of their key elements is their persistence how is that important as it relates to a joint fight? What do land forces do as it relates to persistence that kind of completes the circle, completes the the the, the approach to, to war fighting that other services can accomplish? Uh, so, Amos, that is um, its control. It's being able to occupy ground and, and stay there. So on the one hand, that generates basic uh, uh, advantages for land power that other domains uh, don't don't have so uh, using air power, using remote firepower, um, you can deny ground for a period of time to an adversary. You can just make it too dangerous for them to stay. You can force them to to vacate ground for a period of time. But most of the really important objectives that you would want to achieve uh, using military power sooner or later require you to occupy ground and stay there. So that's partly, of course, in a uh, in terms of conventional military operations, and uh, you see that in Ukraine, yeah. um, because because land is critical to warfare. It has political significance. It has economic significance. Uh, it has tactical operational significance. So you need to be able to take it. Um, but it's also significant for other reasons. You know, human beings live on land, and they don't live on the sea, and they don't live in the air. Yeah. So if you want to control people, if you want to interact with people and generate influence with people, you have to be able to, to exercise a persistent presence uh, on the ground. And, and so, it, you know, that makes land power critically important uh, right across the, the spectrum of conflict. So counterinsurgency operations are based upon controlling populations means you have to control ground um stability operations high intensity war fighting so that is a, a critical advantage and that's one of the things which makes um land forces in a sense it, it's a point made 
Um, it's a point made by other writers. Um, first amongst equals. Yeah. All other things being equal, land forces are likely to be able to give you um, the potential for the most decisive outcomes, in theory. Um, but it's also important to understand that, that that carries with it a lot of disadvantages or challenges and a lot of problems, which also explain why often you don't use land forces and, and other tools would be better. So issues to do with the presence of land forces are often associated with larger political problems, the political footprint that comes from questions about deploying your troops, for example, in someone else's country. The political problems that can come from deploying deploying your own troops in your own country. Um, if you look at the British experience with deploying the British Army in Northern Ireland, the sorts of alienation that can come from doing that. Um, it's Colin Gray's point about the obsolescing welcome that happens when you deploy troops amongst civilians. So I mean, it comes back to the point that I was making previously, which is that you need to understand the potential strengths and weaknesses of of land forces in order that you can make the right choice about when to use them, when not to use them, how to use them best. And there will be many occasions in which you don't want your land forces used or you want the land forces used only in carefully circumscribed ways. It might indeed be that you want maritime forces instead or you want to use air power. Um, but what's important is that everyone understands very clearly and accurately strengths and weaknesses and how you can use the different domains effectively um, to cover one another's weaknesses and also using them together for, uh, to create synergies. Completely agree. And I think it's it's also interesting if you go back to uh, in, go back to Clausewitz and what he wrote about centers of gravity. I'm not a huge centers of gravity fan. I think in many cases that idea is no longer useful. However, he wrote that uh, centers of gravity were generally one of three things, an army, the capital, an adversary's capital, or an ally, right? And so it's uh, when you look at that, granted, there was not really a lot of air power going on during the Napoleonic Wars, nor was there cyber operations. <laughs> but, you know, those, those things, I think that idea that he identified then remains you know, it's transcendent towards today. And it, I think it gets to that point that, you know, the persistence that land forces provide is really one of their, their most uh, uh, valuable attributes. And you mentioned something, too, when we were talking about uh, when you were talking about that and, and the importance of land forces and their persistence and how that uh, factors into to, to modern warfare. And it was uh, you, you mentioned long range fires and, and you mentioned uh, strike and standoff warfare. I think that there. It seems, and maybe I'm just overly pessimistic, um, but it seems as though we're trying to replace the importance of land forces persistence with uh, standoff capability. And we've forgotten that, that, that the persistence is where land forces are most useful, um, or maybe not most useful, but extremely useful. And they bridge the gap between all the other stuff that joint, force, joint forces can do versus what land forces can do. And so, it seems to me that perhaps, at least theoretically, we're, we're trending towards this idea that uh, warfare is becoming a, a targeting process mentality as opposed to a, 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 like, let's go fight a land campaign or let's go fight a joint campaign, not necessarily a land campaign, but a joint campaign to accomplish military and political objectives. Do you see 
uh, something similar in either the writing or your day job uh, or uh, just generally watching the trends in, in, in international relations? Uh, I, I do, Amos. Uh, it's, it's a slightly worrying trend, though not, um, it, it, not an unusual one. I think that um, classically when – I was going to say military organisations, but it's not, not – specific to military organizations i think it's something about western culture when we when we when we try and interpret change what we have a tendency to do i think is to focus on uh technology and to focus on novelty and to spend our time looking for and trying to identify revolutionary change and um, we seem always uh, uh, constantly to be in periods of technologically generated uh, military revolution caused by you know new capabilities that have emerged and i think that that then speaks to the observation that you've made because i think that for for many many commentators and uh, in terms of i think some of the new concepts that seem to have a lot of traction in terms of you know from a british perspective things like multi-domain integration and so on there is a significant focus on new technology and the effect that that is having on things like uh, increasing the transparency and lethality of battlefields, increasing the range at which um, uh, uh, conflicts uh, will take place, as um, speeding up yeah. the tempo of war, leading you know hyperactive battlefields, that that sort of thing. Um, and I think, I think this is problematic because, because what it does is it focuses us on change and not continuity. And I think that, that, that when you look at the past, what you see are, are many incidences where um, the reality of war as it has actually occurred is the amalgam or the outcome of some combination of both change and continuity yep. so i mean that's interesting when you look at uh the war in ukraine and then debates now on the extent to which you can use ukraine to extrapolate what the future of 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 land warfare will look like because on the one hand it is absolutely the case that uh long-range precision fire is an important capability Yep. And the ability to call on that quickly and accurately is really important. I mean, that has been one of the lessons, certainly, that's been reinforced by by the war in Ukraine. It's the extent to which um, having the capability to bring in um, longer range fires than your adversary and to bring those in quickly onto key nodes, so logistics uh, dumps, headquarters, your opponents, long-range fire capabilities these things are important but when you look at how the war is actually being fought on the ground it is also clear that those sorts of capabilities are still an auxiliary element to the the, the key facets of, of of land combat at a tactical operational level uh, so when you look at uh, the progress that is being made um, in the fighting at the moment, what you see, in fact, is a, in many respects, a restatement of the importance of traditional infantry infiltration tactics that were developed during the First World War. So 
that the latest Ukrainian techniques, for example, for trying to make progress against Russian defences actually involve the devolved use of small groups of infantry infiltrating forward. So you want your long-range fire capabilities to support them. And it is also the case that long-range fires are killing most of, or killing or injuring most of the, the those that are being killed or injured. Yep. Um, I've seen figures between 80 and 90% of casualties are coming from long-range fires, but that's not new either. In the Second World War, it was over, over 70%. So um, I, I think that the problem that we have at the moment is that um, we are repeating uh, the mistake that we have made many times in the past in focusing on novelty and not thinking enough about how the new will interact with the old to produce a changing character of war. I mean, ultimately, in Ukraine, you need to be both innovative and adaptive, but you also need to be competent in the basics of combined arms warfare. Yeah, that's 100% correct. I think the first thing that, uh, so there's like, uh, once you put an army in the field, whoever you happens to be, once you put an army in the field, the first rule of, of warfare is don't die, right? And so regardless of how high tech your military may be, um, the first rule of the war is don't die. And so you're going to quickly devolve or evolve, whichever way you want to look at it, to operate in a way that allows you to accomplish your objectives, but not die doing so, or not die as quickly as you could if you were just going, hey, diddle diddle right up the middle and uh, and, and trying to just move out and uh, accomplish those objectives. And I think that that's, that's a uh, good point that we need to keep in mind when we think about what you said, the continuities interacting with the, uh, the novelty, like the first rule of war is don't die. And so all these cool things that we're putting on the battlefield, like, you know, transparent battlefield. Well, if there's armies still in the field, they're probably just going to go, you know, like we see underground or at least in some sort of trench with overhead cover and then only come out when needed um, to move forward and do things. And so uh, I, I very much uh, appreciate that perspective. I also think that the um, I, I, your point on Ukraine is, is a good one, too, because I think a lot of folks use it as a it's a convenient tool for whatever your narrative may be about warfare and the future of warfare. And you can always go find something to justify it. You know, some people are like, you know, this, you know, large scale conventional land warfare is back. Some people are like, well, it's only back because Russia and Ukraine actually aren't very good militaries. I saw that one recently. Um, and, you know, so it's just this, it's if you want to justify anything, you can find it in that conflict. And uh, I think the, the the closing point before I maneuver on to my next question that's a that's a cheeky segue there um is that there's no there's really no game-changing technology there's always this arc of challenge and response and the the folks with the challenge will always be a step ahead of the responder and uh you know so like when something new is introduced there's going to be that period where it's you know they're going to get this asymmetric advantage for a short period of time but eventually the response will catch up with that 
And so, uh, if if you caught my my little joke there, we're going to talk about maneuver now. This will be the last uh, the last little bit of what we talk about here today. Um, and so, going back to your book, uh, understanding land warfare, but then also you had a great chapter in a new book that just came out uh, through Oxford you know, University Press called Advanced Land Warfare Tactics and Operations. I think that your description of maneuver uh, and how it interacts with uh, attrition is one of the most level headed and reasoned understanding out there. And I think I, I'm a little biased because I'm in the camp that you can't do it all the time everywhere and that it's based off uh, components. So the things that you have or don't have, it's based off the conditions, right? So if you're not in an environment that's suitable for maneuver, you're not going to be able to do maneuver as much as you want to say we do maneuver, right? And so like I work in a big city in central Texas. And uh, when I look out the window, from the building that I work in, I say, how do you do maneuver in that? You can't because it's just so big and it's so dense that, uh, you, you know, you, the conditions aren't present for maneuver, at least at the big scale, maybe at the small, like squad level scale, but that's, you know, that's, uh, yeah, you can justify that all the time in almost any environment. And so I say all that to say, tell me about your thoughts on maneuver. I think it's, again, I think it's, how did you come to the such reasoned, level-headed approach to this? Because it's a very hot-button uh, topic today. Uh, I came to the assessment of that, a, a kind of a more balanced approach towards this relationship between nutrition and maneuver, simply because I became concerned about the ex extent to which maneuverism um, has become elevated almost to the status of a religion. Yeah. in military organizations, which I think is both dangerous uh, and uh, unfair for military officers. Because in a sense, um, uh, as I indicate in the chapter, there is a sense in which maneuverism as a philosophy, a maneuverist approach, mm -hmm. essentially um, is, is, is so nebulous that it becomes anything that works and it's yep. applied retrospectively usually it's used to explain why losers lost that's right and why the winners won yep. if you were successful you're maneuverist you've employed maneuverism a maneuverist yep. approach and if you failed it's because you weren't maneuverist yeah you're enough. just a dometricianist yeah 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 and i think that that is that is that is dangerous and, and i think as i say it is unfair because it, it is expecting or seems to expect that in every situation, any quality officer mm -hmm. should be able to come up with an innovative approach which will uh, guarantee success quickly and with um, minimal losses. And it's ahistorical. Yeah. So if you think about uh, attrition as um, you know, a wearing down process, and if you think about maneuverism as something which is um, more system focused, it's, it's focused on tempo, it's focused on uh, pitting your strengths against your opponent's weaknesses, and it's focused on attacking sort of key nodes and intangibles. So you collapse the enemy's system by attacking those things that matter most to them. Uh, and so you don't have to work your way through their military capabilities. So it should be quicker, it should be more decisive, it should be lower cost. But actually, I think that when you look at how we have fought in the past, you can see that there is this synergistic relationship between attrition and manoeuvre. And I think 
you know, that is often recognised, but I don't think it's often recognised just how important that attritional component is, because often that relationship between attrition and manoeuvre is characterised in terms of, well, the purpose of of manoeuvre is attrition, and if you employ manoeuvre correctly, you will ensure that that attrition is employed disproportionately against the adversary and not against you. But, you know, when you look at the past, um, you can see many circumstances in which there is no manoeuvrist key that will unlock a difficult situation. Essentially, you are locked into a process of attrition, not just for hours or days, but for weeks or months and maybe years Mm -hmm. before you can start to be able to apply uh, what what we might th- might think as being classical classic maneuver warfare and that is because ultimately the context may dictate that there is no easy way of thinking about clever solutions to the problems that you face so if you take the normandy campaign as an example i mean that is a successful campaign it it achieves its objectives uh, on time you know, you land on the 6th of June, the aim is to get to, to Paris um, in 90 days, and they do it. But it is a very, very different kind of campaign from the one that's expected. You spend about seven weeks, it's nearly two months, locked into grinding attrition yep. against the German army. Difficult, high-intensity, high-casualty attritional warfare. And that's not because Allied officers are stupid. It's it's not because they're not trying to think cre- creatively. And there is plenty of innovation, particularly at a tactical level. Yep. But I think the, the point the point to make is that there are many circumstances, particularly when you're up against an adversary who is competent, where you simply cannot win quickly. And I think that's interesting because I mean you mentioned about Ukraine and well, you know the Ukrainians and Russians might be might be just you know they're, they're not good not good militaries. But we see we see in Ukraine uh, exactly this 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 issue of of what happens if you are fighting against an adversary whose uh, quality of force employment is not um, significantly worse than yours. Mm-hmm. This is one of the problems, for example, going back to the Gulf War and looking at, at that as an example of the success of maneuver warfare. I think that it is equally plausible that um, all the Gulf War tells you is that where that gap in quality of force employment, this is Stephen Biddle's point in his excellent yeah. book of military power, where that quality of force employment is significantly different, uh, more or less any approach will work will work yeah. will break your adversary very quickly and indeed yep. in those circumstances um the uh, uh the quicker and larger your frontal assault perhaps the, the 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 quicker you will you will win so there is a basic problem i think with that assumption that if you're in attrition you're 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 an idiot you 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 yep. failed um there is a lot that you need to do in what what can be the inevitable attritional phases of a campaign a lot you need to do to win and you need to think creatively about how you do attrition um and that is a problem because i think that well for two reasons one is that culturally western militaries 
are uncomfortable with attrition. You don't, you don't, you don't get promoted by That's saying right. this is a plan in which I intend to grind my way through the enemy. Um, you know, you don't get promoted for saying that. So uh, culturally, as a military, skill is about rapidity, decisiveness and low cost. But there's also an issue of practicality. Um, I think Western militaries are predisposed towards wanting to elevate maneuver to um, the forefront of their concepts for fighting because Western militaries cannot fight attritionally anymore. And you made the point about uh, needing to survive to be able to innovate. And I think one of the problems that we have, I mean, certainly, for example, the British Army uh, does not have the capability to fight a Ukraine-style war with the attrition yeah. it will take because it will have very quickly indeed a devastating effect on the capabilities of the forces. Even if we could provide more manpower, it won't be as well trained yeah. as the, the, you know, the, the, the army that goes to war. Actually, one of the lessons from the past, First World War, Second World War, is that the army you eventually win with probably isn't the army you started with. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And part of that is it's about attrition and the wearing down that, that, that happens. Yeah, that, and in many cases, the army you win with is that army of uh, recruits that is just pulled to the front and uh, hastily trained and, you know, given a rifle and said, ready, set, go. And that, that really, really, really well-trained army that you started with is long gone. And there may be a few folks still around, but not a lot. No. Well, I mean, it's a good way of getting promoted if you can survive. That's, yeah, that's I mean, right. I think, I think, I think that, that for me is the worrying thing, that um, we're betting the farm on maneuverism yeah. When we should also be asking the question, if we have to fight attritionally, because history suggests we will oh, have to, clearly, how can we do that? Yeah, and that's where I think when we look at Western military doctrine as well across you know both sides of the, uh, the proverbial pond, there's a, a significant lack of – so doctrine seems to be written from the perspective of this is what I want to do. Right. And like, generally speaking, like that's cool, but it doesn't necessarily matter what you want to do. Because again, going back to what we we're discussing, you know, capability, what do you have? Can you do it physically? Does the terrain allow you to do it? You're talking about the Normandy campaign, you know, Bocage country uh, made maneuver very challenging because the, the terrain said no, you know, and then the enemy said no on top of the terrain, right? Those two things intertwined said, you're just going to have to slug your way through this thing until you get to a point where you can then do the big exploitation move, right? And so that's a, a major problem with Western military doctrine today is it's so focused on preference and not focused on reality, to your point. You know, like we're developing and training folks that don't understand the situations, the environments uh, that they may find, that they will likely find themselves, not may, probably will find themselves in at least uh, to a point. And I think Alexander Svechin, you know, early 20th century Russian uh, strategist uh, and Russian military officer, in his book Strategy, he talks about the purposeful use of attrition. And it, it very much outlined or aligns with what you were saying and how, you know, sometimes you just have, you know, if, if your main effort's over here, sometimes you, you have a, a an attritional element to the, uh, uh, you know, aligned with that. 
that's just there to grind down the opponent and suck down resources from the opponent. You know, I, I think that that's a big part of what we forget is we forget that like math matters and resource matters. And at the end of the day, like if you're trying to get something again, going back to Clausewitz's you know definition of a center of gravity, the army, capital, or ally. To focus on that, you need to pull resources away from somewhere else, right? It's almost attritional by not doing attrition in other places as opposed to focusing everything in one spot. And so it's uh, it's just an interesting problem, I think, with, with how we view the world today, Western militaries view the world today as it relates to that. I think um, you know, there's a tendency to think that, 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 you're, that you only do operational art when, when you're doing maneuver. Yeah, that's right. And and there is skillful operational art involved in attritional approaches. Oh, absolutely. And that gets to the last point on maneuver before we move on. Um, or well, I'll have one more question on maneuver. But the last point that I'm going to make here real quick is that the systems – so I'm a huge systems thinking person, and I think that systems thinking is how you have to approach – uh, warfare, and you have to think of the think of yourself, but think of your adversary as a a large open system that interacts with the environment, learns, adapts, and does all those all those things that systems theory talks about. And I think, uh, you know, going back to like the early '90s, the Gulf War period, you had John Warden, you know, the Five Rings Theory. He talked about the the adversary as a system, but I think in many cases he misunderstood or misapplied that that systems theory thing. And so, you know, we talk about maneuver being a systems thinking oriented approach, but I think really attrition in my opinion is just as much a systems thinking approach uh, as as maneuver might be because you're just going about it differently and i would argue you're going about it more practically because with maneuver you're you're going after theoretical things right theoretically inducing cognitive collapse right and paralysis whereas with attrition you're just trying to like physically break the system through attacking certain parts of it and so i i think it's important to understand for for folks that or trying to understand how those two things interact. They, they are both systems oriented thinking. And it was, uh, I thought it was good too. I don't know if I can find it real quick, but you mentioned in, uh, in, in here when you're talking about Soviet operational art. Yeah, here it is. This is great. I'm talking about Tukhachevsky and I'm going to quote from your book here. Tukhachevsky argued that the aim of an operation was not the destruction of some hypothetical abstract nervous system of the army, but destruction of the real organism. And I think that that's brilliant when we think about um, the relationship between systems thinking, attrition, and maneuver, you know, because it's you can go after the abstract or you can go after what you know is real. And, you know, it may sound awful going after what's real, you know, we're going to just go try and attack this, uh, you know, whatever element this thing is and uh, destroy it versus like do some big oop-de-oop and try and make them go, oh gosh, we give up, you know, because you got behind us. Um, and I know I'm oversimplifying, but go ahead. No, 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 no. I think I think it's an important point because because again, if you if you look at the Normandy campaign, part of that attritional approach is breaking uh, in a fundamental way your opponent's concept of how they want to fight. Um, you keep yep. pushing along the front line, make it impossible for the Germans to take their uh, Panzer division, their maneuver elements out of the line. They they cannot form the counter-attacking groups that they yep. would need to engage in and in the sort of fight that they want to engage in. So there is um, uh, a, a way in which you can dominate the enemy and prevent them from fighting in the way that they want to fight through attritional approaches. So I think, as I said, um, there is skill in operational art involved in attrition. We need to give that yep. more credence. 
All right. So last question on on uh, on maneuver. What is the future of maneuver? You talk about it in advanced land warfare. You got a chapter on it. Uh, another uh, sound discussion on the interaction of maneuver and attrition. But looking at the future, uh, tell me what you think the future of maneuver warfare is. So so I'm worried. Um given what I've said and bearing that in mind. I mean, it seems to me that the logic of multi-domain approaches to warfare is essentially a kind of, it's it's a an extension of the manoeuvrist thinking. Um, that yeah. idea that, uh, so the multi, multi-domain approach is essentially a net-centric approach to thinking about warfare. Mm-hmm. And I think once again, as we've done many times in history, there is a view that technology is producing a military revolution, that military revolution is information-based, and that victory in future war will come from information superiority. And uh, you can leverage that through creating a system of systems, a multi-domain approach. You break down the uh, uh, vertical compartmentalization that we impose on war. You break down the difference between the levels of war. You break down the horizontal compartmentalization by breaking down the differences between the domains. It means that um, you can do hypermaneuverism. With your information superiority, you will be able to, to um, map your opponent's military system in exquisite detail and attack all of those key nodes very, very quickly, very accurately, and essentially collapse their system uh, very quickly indeed. So this net-centric approach based on an information-based military revolution should um, finally allow maneuverism um, to to become um, absolutely the dominant form of of war in the future. And and I find that uh, it's contestable, and I think it's for reasons which I think are self-evident given given our p- previous discussion, a very dangerous thing. Yeah. I think that to pick up the, the theme um, that you mentioned, Amos, I think that we are building an idea of the orientating our land forces towards an idea of a war that we would like to fight, not necessarily the war that, 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 that we will get. It's a point made by the strategist Colin Gray. Um, most wars are a race between belligerents to correct the mistaken assumptions they began with and the problem with thinking of assuming that information superiority faster kill chains um Mm -hmm. uh, more extensive um digital architectures to network things together assuming that those will increase decisively our military effectiveness versus uh likely adversary in the future is very dangerous given what we know about the nature and character of warfare so for example war is adversarial. If networks are going to become so important to the way in which we try and fight, self-evidently, adversaries are going to target those networks. So in some respects, the actual character of, of, of the war we get in the future might be what's left when our current theories have failed and we are then trying to, <laughs> to, um, to work with the remnants of those in combination with those sorts of traditional verities like combined arms warfare that, that, that have worked in the past and I think will be important in the future. So our, our current view of the future, I think, is highly manoeuvrist and it is based on yeah. information superiority and um, net-centric warfare. And I think there are reasons why those, that approach 
has been problematic in the past, and, and I think that we we will see that we will struggle to implement them in the future. So I would see the future being, in a sense, what we're seeing in Ukraine, which is that blend of aspects of change, aspects of continuity in the particular context in which you're fighting. Is there a is there a hot take out there right now in, in, in military thinking or in just uh, what how people are viewing armed conflict today that you think is uh, absolutely incorrect or uh, just completely off the mark? Well, I think it builds on what I've just said. Um, when you serve when you survey yeah. contemporary military thinking, and it's not even just Western military thinking. If you look at um, Russian ideas relating to reconnaissance strike complexes, Chinese ideas of intelligentized warfare. Um, Two things, uh, I I think, uh, form at the moment a matter of consensus. Uh, One is that the future is information superiority. It's it's networks and AI. And second, we are still thinking, as we have tended to do in the past, about the changing character of warfare as if there will only be one. And I think that, you know, there are significant warnings from the past about focusing too much on technology and information as the root of success and also on the idea that there's only one possible future because there's probably as many future characters of land warfare as there will be land wars that's perfect and with that chris uh thank you and uh we'll we'll go ahead and wrap up there thank you chris appreciate it no problem at all amos 